Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome. Sunday morning. It is Hardline here on News Radio 930 WBEN. You can treat today as your pregame show to what will uh, obviously be a Sabres victory this afternoon. Uh, it's it's Joe Beamer and Brenda Lacey with you. Brenda, good morning. Good morning. Funny you should say that, Joe. I was thinking that this is the pregame show, and I'm guessing um, they're probably going to draft you and put you in goal at this rate, or maybe put you uh, in place of Eichel because – uh, at this point, anybody but this current team can do better. It's just mind-boggling, isn't I'll, it? I'll tell you. Hopefully, they, they don't look at old uh, highlights of me playing lacrosse goalie for Amherst, or they, they might actually <laughs> be happier with Carter Hutton than uh, drafting me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm ready to go in. I mean, it's just so, just so disappointing. But uh, nonetheless, we are here to talk about politics and current events. That is true, and uh, kicking things off, it has been a busy week in New York State, and Brenda, I always say I'm happy when we can keep this show to state, to local and state politics, and that's exactly what we're doing today, you know? You want the national stuff? Guess what? At noon after this show airs, you get the national show with Meet the Press. We like to keep it local, and we have the opportunity to do so today, and let's kick it off with the minority leader in the assembly, William Barkley of the 102nd District. Assemblyman, good morning. Good morning. How are you guys? Doing well. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. And I've got to ask your reaction right off the bat to another former aide of the governor uh, accusing him of sexual harassment. Yeah, I think I, I agree with the other leaders uh, in the legislature. And obviously the uh, uh, attorney general, I think, has made a statement on it. It's very troublesome. I mean, it's troublesome when you have one, but when you have two, it kind of backs up maybe the story of the other. And I certainly feel like there ought to be a uh, full investigation going forward with it. You know, we're facing so many challenges with the state. We have the governor has been, you know, under fire for rightfully so for his handling of the nursing home is maybe just generally handling the the pandemic. And then uh, you have these allegations. I just think, you know, there's a real problem with him governing at this point with all these allegations swirling around him. Uh, Well, with all of these allegations, as you point out, uh, swirling and getting worse by the day, it seems uh, there's, you know, Joe and I were talking about how we like to focus on state and local issues. But this is also becoming a national story. And he is being, you know, criticized for this behavior, if indeed what these women are alleging is true. What do you think the consequences would be? And how soon can any sort of punitive action take place? That's a great question. So first of all, I think, you know, 
we went through this whole pandemic with the governor when he was touting great leadership of it, even though I think a lot of people in state government realized maybe the leadership wasn't as good as it was, but he was kind of playing the contrast, I think, to the president at that time. And then things started to leak out about the nursing homes, and uh, we always knew that those numbers probably weren't accurate. But then finally we had the attorney general come out with her bombshell report where she said fatalities in nursing homes were 50 percent higher than what was being reported by the governor. And then we obviously had that closed-door political meeting where you had the governor's chief aide say, um, you know, they weren't releasing the uh, nursing home fatality numbers because they were worried about a Department of Justice investigation. And so that, I mean, that is really problematic to us. We've been calling for an independent investigation. That we've been calling to put together an impeachment uh, commission to look at to see whether any crimes were committed in regards to that, whether they're obstruction of justice or abuse of power or something else. And then we could, we wouldn't prejudge that commission, but we'd see what they came out. And if there was some uh, criminal offenses uh, that were um, done, then uh, we could consider whether that rises to the level of an impeachable offense. Now you throw in these uh, harassment claims. There's a lot of questions arising. These not necessarily of the accuser stories, but exactly what's happening in the governor's office. You know, we all are required to take sexual harassment training uh, through state law. Even private businesses now have to, or in New York, uh, have to provide their employees with sexual harassment training. I'd like to know if the governor ever underwent that. Uh, we obviously would like to know whether there's other claims out there. And, we, you know, ultimately it comes down to whether this governor has enough trust between the executive branch and the legislative branch, but is there enough trust with the governor between himself and the citizens of New York that he can continue to govern, govern or can continue to govern effectively. So those are a lot of questions and how this progresses. And one thing I feel fairly strong about is I don't think uh, the accused can pick the judge. So the governor said, well, we're going to hire an outside uh, person to look into this. I think it ought to be an independent investigation that comes in. That's what you would do if there was a claim of sexual harassment in business. I don't see why it should be any different if there's a sexual harassment claim uh, with the executive branch and the governor. Will, uh, you, of course, represent um, Assembly District 120 uh, in our state, and you're also an attorney. You are a graduate of Syracuse Law School. From a legal standpoint, uh, is there anything that can be done to the governor as he sits in the governor's mansion today? Well, you know, I, we have to let the, I'm not an expert on that. We'll have to look at, have attorneys look at it. I don't know if any of the claims of harassment rise to the level of criminal criminality, but maybe, but certainly it's a lot of bad judgment. And, you know, this is one thing with the Me Too movement. It's brought a lot of these bad judgments to light. And it's not fair to those women working in these uh, workplaces to be harassed. So, you know, I think it's worth investigating whether, you know, rises to criminal level. I think it's another thing. But if it, if, it's, if it continues to be a pattern out there uh, that the governor engaged in this harassment, uh, I do think further investigation and there has to be some accountability to that. And what that exactly is, uh, I don't know at this moment, but certainly some accountability has to be had. Assemblyman, um, if, if the governor's independent, quote, uh, investigation goes on, can you at the same time have another in investigation going on that you guys are putting on? Can there be two separate investigations happening at the same time? Yeah, I don't see why there, why there couldn't be. The, the question is, you know, we have a lot of stuff coming up 
you know, we have the budget. It's probably the biggest thing that we do uh, in state government. And I think we just have to get back to the question of whether this governor can continue to effectively govern and whether there's enough trust there to be able to get that done. And so, yes, can we still do it? Yes. Is it going to be difficult? Uh, No doubt. And I I do think there's two different things going on here at one time, but it ultimately comes down to, I mean, remember when it happened with Governor Spitzer, uh, when he had it, he uh, had the trooper gate situation going on, and then he ended up obviously getting caught with the uh, circumstance with a prostitute and ultimately had to resign. I don't know if we're at that level yet with uh, this governor, but uh, certainly his actions are very concerning, and we do need to have a full accounting of it. Let me ask you, as of right now, would you would you want would you call on Governor Cuomo to step down to resign? And do you think the governor would step down and resign or do you think it would take an impeachment? Right. So I I think ultimately I'm not going to, again, prejudge any findings yet. So I think it's maybe premature, although I think with the harassment claims, I, I think that would be the outcome of that if they've proven true or there's more claims uh that would be resignation with a nursing home and potential cover-up that would be the proper vehicle if the governor uh wouldn't resign that would be impeachment so there's two things but you know this governor has really circled the wagons too we haven't heard much from him we had one report out saying that they were gonna he was gonna hire a former judge i guess to investigate and i just think that is probably not well not probably that isn't the appropriate uh, response here we ought to have independent investigation what that is whether it's the attorney general appointing an independent investigator maybe or you know hiring in a, a law firm to come in and investigate but you know the people that work there they deserve this uh, harassment has no place in the work in the workplace so uh, we have to get to the bottom of that uh, well, I know that the, the state senators are conferencing, even as we speak, about this issue. Do you plan to uh, convene any sort of meeting with your colleagues? Yeah, we do it. Uh, we're not going to do that today, but we'll do it tomorrow. And it's on a whole host of things, not just this issue, but uh, uh, we'll do it. Um, what's our next steps with the nursing homes? You know, I'm, I'm disappointed with my colleagues on the cross. Yeah, we've been calling to take away his emergency powers since uh, late last spring, early summer, and now with all the stuff going around, when you realize that uh, maybe the governor hasn't been upfront with the nursing homes and some of the executive orders that have been issued that don't seem like they're based in science but seem like they're completely arbitrary, uh, we think the legislature should have moved on this two weeks ago, and we're going to keep uh, hammering on that, that we ought to uh, put a resolution together to get take back those emergency powers. And I think it's now more important than ever because, as I said, I just don't know if the trust is there. So at the very least, uh, the legislative legislature ought to reassert itself as a co-equal branch of government. And what happened with the, with the call? Because it did seem for like a week you had not only Republicans, but Democrats calling for those powers. Uh, Brenda and I, uh, a month ago, had Democrat Pat Burke on the show. He was calling on the governor's powers to be uh, to be held back. When did that stop? When did that momentum stop? Because now it seems like we're kind of back to Republican versus Democrat. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I call it the Albany two-step. I don't. I think some people say stuff in their district, but when they go back to Albany, uh, maybe they're not pushing as hard. I don't know what they're doing in the uh, Assembly Democratic Caucus, other than we've tried to bring up, as you know, the state senates, the Republicans in the Senate brought up possible amendments. Uh, to uh, force a vote on the taking away of the 
emergency powers. We've tried to do that. The assembly has laid aside every bill, so we can't attach a hostile amendment to force a vote on that in the assembly. And that was last week. So we're going to continue to do that. We're not going to give up on it. And I think the reasonable questions to ask my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, especially those who were out publicly saying they believed in that, you know, what's going on? Why isn't it done? And I think if you did get it to a vote, uh, I think you would have a majority vote to take that away at this time. That's why they don't want it to come to a vote. And well, while there may be uh, divisions with uh, the Democrats, uh, were you surprised to see a Democrat as powerful as Letitia James put forth that long report about the nursing home problems? How much of a shock was that to you that it came from her? Yeah, I called a bombshell, and it was a bombshell. I'm pleased that she did it. Now, I would say, and it did, I mean, her report brought the legitimacy to our claims, but it wasn't a secret in all. I mean, I think most people thought that they were underreporting or not accurately reporting the deaths in nursing homes. So the fact that she came out with that report, I think, added a lot of ammunition to the claims that we already were making. But I was happy she did it because it thought it brought new light to this issue and allowed us to keep pushing ahead and get further investigations. You know, the Empire Center, as a public policy group, had sued to get this information. And right after the Tish James um, report came out, uh, they won that lawsuit, and they also had a report as a result of that. So, yeah, I was pleased she did it, but uh, she's been a close ally of the governor, and so that kind of brings even more legitimacy to the claim that maybe they weren't being up front with these numbers. Uh, you know, it was you characterized it as a bombshell. I think many people would agree with you, but I also thought it was quite shocking when Melissa DeRosa said, quote, we froze uh, about the nursing home issue. Uh, that was not good enough in your view, right? Yeah, not at all. I mean, she said she froze, and then she said we were concerned about a the Department of Justice investigation and what numbers to give to the legislature and what numbers to give to the Department of Justice. We still don't have clarity exactly what the governor gave to the Department of Justice, what those numbers were. And we know we didn't get any numbers from the, uh, the legislature, from the governor, other than what was reported in the media. And I think, unfortunately, we've been trying to get uh, Dr. Zucker, the head of the uh, health department, to testify. Uh, he did finally agree to testify at a budget hearing last week. But his answer is we couldn't really pin him down. He, the, the legislators didn't have a lot of time to question him. And when they did, he was um, ambigu and his answers were dodgy. They didn't really address the questions that were being asked by the legislators. Speaking of Dr. Zucker, uh, this week he talked about new guidelines for schools coming out this week. Do you have any insight on that and what that could look like? Well, I'm looking forward to it. It seems like it's been a mismatch. Uh, it doesn't seem like it's helping students. It seems like the, this is one of the problems we have with the governor's executive powers. They, they make rulings and they change it and then they leave it up to locals. And it seems to be all over the place. So some clear guidance. I would like to see kids get back to school. I think it can be done uh, safely. And again, it kind of goes back to the fact that I'm not sure these executive powers that are granted the governors, they always base these in science, and I don't see any reason why the legislature can't have input on those. You know, the, the initial claim was the legislature wasn't going to be able to act fast enough, but we didn't even know, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic whether we would even be able to convene, but clearly we can. We can do it remotely. We can act fast, and there's no reason individual legislators' constituents don't have a voice uh, in all beyond this. So 
long and short of it, I hope they do come out with some uh, clear guidance on uh, getting kids back to school full time. And I think you can do it. And I think the science backs up that feeling that you can do it. Speaking of guidance, and I should have asked this question earlier, uh, but speaking of guidance, say the president, uh, the president, the governor's powers are taken or they just expire when they're supposed to expire. Does that mean every guidance he's put out will have to be reassessed through the assembly in the Senate? So that's a good question. We get asked that a lot. So he, he, every executive order that he does under his extraordinary powers has to be renewed by him every 30 days. He can just do it by another executive order. So if it's, say, we take away that power, the executive uh, orders that he did would be good until that 30 days ran out. And then going forward, he wouldn't be able to issue any more. And the same thing would be the case if the powers just expired on April 30th, which are you know, set to do. Will, uh, you represent a beautiful part of our state, more so in uh, central New York than uh, for those of us who are in western New York, but uh, it never fails to amaze me how many resources and how beautiful our state is, and yet we get so caught up in all of these political problems and legitimate, you know, legitimate problems to be sure. But some of the folks in our area that have really suffered are those in the hospitality industry. What's it been like in your district for restaurants and hotels and others who serve the public in the tourism industry with these restrictions? Yeah, it's been tragic, really. I think they're struggling just like they're struggling all around the state. And, you know, when we started this pandemic, I know out your way and certainly in central New York, uh, we were fortunate enough didn't have a high infection rate. But instead of doing it regionally, the governor shut down the state completely. And that, you know, for two or three weeks when there really weren't any real infection uh, problems with the COVID and various. So that, that really hurt those hospitalities. It was people people really on the front line, but then he continues to do stuff like the zones. He did the indoor dining when it, when the indoor dining showed that the infection rate from for COVID and indoor dining was something like one or 1.2%. So those people are struggling. And, it, and the question is, are they struggling for a good public health reason? Or are they struggling for optics? And I would argue that these aren't really based on good public health reasons. And I feel for these people. It's hard enough already to do business in New York State. You know, you name it, whether regulation, taxes, or otherwise, uh, these poor small businesses are struggling. And the, the pandemic just made it worse. And we haven't done anything to really to help them uh, going forward. And how has the vaccination rollout been in your neck of the woods? Uh, interestingly, uh, so I live in Oswego County, which is just north of uh, Syracuse. So we are fortunate, I think, for Oswego County, for whatever reasons, it hasn't been as rocky as it's been in other parts of the state, other than uh, trying to get the vaccinations been difficult, obviously. Uh, but I think, again, I don't want to keep going back to the governor, but his rollout was not well handled. It was rightfully criticized. And what he had done was cut out the counties who were mandated by the federal and state governments to come up with vaccination plans. They've had these plans in place for a decade or so. Uh, the governor overruled that. So that's not those aren't the plans we're going to follow. We're going to try to run it through hospitals who are wholly inequipped, unequipped to do that. Uh, fortunately, after a week of totally realizing, or of disaster, frankly, uh, they realized that wasn't going to work that well, and they, they then reinstituted it through the counties, and you've seen much smoother rollout. But 
still got a lot of bumps in it, and it, I feel for those people that need to get vaccinated, they can't. I think sometimes the state, you call the state, they're sending them up to all different parts of the state, like Plattsburgh, I'd heard, was one place, was the only place where people could get vaccinated, and then it was up to Potsdam. Uh, but, you know, the major population centers or hubs weren't, you weren't able to get vaccinated in those places. So it's been kind of one problem after another, although I do think it's gotten better since they've now uh, are using the counties to help get these vaccinations out. Before we close, Will, uh, do you think that uh, with, the, with the situation with the governor, uh, it seems like the Republicans might have a, a legitimate shot to take over uh, the seat in Albany. Do you think Tom Reed is interested, and do you have any interest in running for the governor of New York State? Well, I, that's a very easy answer for myself. No, I don't. Uh, two, do I think Tom Reed's interested? That's the rumor I've heard. If he's interested, I think he'd be a great candidate, and if he's successful, I think he'd be a great governor. But, uh, you know, that's politics, and I think the issues that we're facing right now, uh, this is really governance, and I think, you know, I try to not try to tie the two together because I don't want to be accused of partisanship uh, on some issues as weighty as, you know, the nursing home deaths, the whole pandemic and the governance during the pandemic, and now with these sexual harassment claims. But So ultimately, does it weaken the governor politically? Of course it does. And you would be naive not to say that, but that's not what our driving, uh, our driving motivation is. Our driving motivation is try to get good, good governance uh, during these very difficult times. Assemblyman Will Barkley from the 120 District in Central New York. He's also the Assembly Minority Leader. Thank you, Will, very much for joining us today. We appreciate the time. Great talking to you guys. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Thank you. You too. too. Thanks. Joe, we'll uh, send it to news and be back with Eva Joyo right after that news update. And welcome back to Hardline on this last Sunday of February, February 28th. Glad to put this month behind us and on to uh, better weather, hopefully. Uh, but certainly things continue to royal in current events, public uh, public things happening with the governor, all sorts of political intrigue happening no matter what. And we also want to point out that Black History Month is coming to a close today, so we thought it only appropriate to have one of the best-known African-American historians on the air with us. And uh, she is also a retired Buffalo school teacher with 30 years classroom teaching experience. It is Eva Doyle. Good morning, Eva. Welcome. Yes, uh, good morning uh, to you and to Joe Beamer. Uh, thank you for inviting me. The last time I was on Hardline was in 2010 when I ran for Lieutenant Governor of New York State. That's a long time. It certainly is. Well, 11 years is way too long, and hopefully there won't be that many years uh, in between the next time we speak with you, Eva. Yeah. Uh, so much to get into when it comes to what's happening in our communities of color. First of all, um, I wanted to get your take about uh, the way people in uh, communities of color seem to be more affected by the COVID-19 virus and also the uh, fear, perhaps, of people taking the vaccination. Uh, What have you learned about that over the past year? Well, you know, I can understand um, people of color, especially African-Americans, being hesitant about taking the vaccine due to the history uh, that we have seen in the past. Uh, one of the most well-known cases, of course, was the Tuskegee experiment uh, with black men who were told that we were going to be treated for syphilis when, in fact, they were not. And that particular uh, experiment lasted for 40 years. So, But there have been other cases 
over the years, uh, experiments on black men in the prisons and other places and the Henrietta Lacks um, thing with the uh, her uh, harvesting of her cells without the knowledge of her uh, family. So there is a historical um, reference to African-Americans being hesitant about taking the vaccine. But I'm encouraged because I see that more people are beginning to um, uh, become involved in taking it. I'm encouraged because we do have a local community center, the Delavan Grider Community Center, that's going to be offering uh, appointments next week. And I saw Reverend Al Sharpton this morning um, take the vaccine publicly. So there are some encouraging signs. Yeah, Eva, I I want your uh, thoughts on uh, New York State and Erie County uh, on trying to get the African-American community to go and get the vaccine. Do you think it's been so far a successful campaign for the state and and, and most for Erie County to get the vaccines in those communities and make sure that everyone has a chance to get vaccinated? Yes. um, Thank you, Joe. Uh, I think it was a slow start. Uh, I think um, uh, Mr. Mark Polenkars and the uh, health officials began to realize that they were lagging in terms of getting uh, African-Americans on board. And when the uh, COVID really started, uh, our community uh, saw large numbers of cases. But what has happened in recent months is the fact that uh, the cases of COVID in the African-American community have actually gone down. And I credit that with the fact that there was a real grassroots effort in the black community between um, people at the uh, grassroots level, our pastors, our task force on health care inequality, people like uh, Dr. Vasquez and health officials, the community health center, and just ordinary people. I came down Jefferson Avenue a few weeks ago. And right on the corner of Jefferson and East Utica was Pastor Arthur Boyd and uh, in his assistance passing out um, masks and hand sanitizer. So the African-American community really came together to address it. I think that's why our rates of COVID went down. But I, I was also discouraged a little bit because... I felt that not only um, Erie County Executive Mr. Polenkars and our governor could have done more to have African-American health professionals um, standing with them on their panels, and I think that would have done a, a, a great deal to get our people on board. But I have seen some improvement. Eva, have you been vaccinated? No, I have not. Uh, not yet. Um, I have some health issues and I, with some conference, uh, with, com- working with my doctor, um, I probably will. But right now I'm dealing with some um, medical issues right now. But uh, let me say this. I do not in- discourage anyone in our community from getting vaccine. Uh, vaccinated. As a matter of fact, my youngest son, 
called me, and he has made an appointment because he's a grandfather. He says, I'm going to get this vaccine because I have grandchildren, I have family, and I want to make sure that I'm here for, for them. But um, I'm saying all that to, to let you know that in the future, I probably will do it. But right now, I haven't made that decision. Uh, you know, I mentioned uh, when uh, I introduced you that you've spent uh, three decades in the classroom teaching. And I'm very curious about your thoughts about how the pandemic has affected kids not being able to physically go into a classroom. Uh, how do you feel about that? Yes, I, you know, I, I think it has really affected them a great deal. Um, I spent, uh, as you mentioned, 30 years, actually 30 years plus as a classroom teacher. And I know it's so important for our children to be in school. I, I'm really glad that our superintendent, Dr. Cash, has, and the Board of Education has begun to open up the schools. And I heard recently they're going to open up the schools for more grades. I think we will uh, probably continue to see um, students do their lessons online. But if parents want the uh, opportunity for the children to go into the classroom, I think they should have that opportunity. But I know how important it is for children to be uh, in, to be socialized with the with the um, classmates, uh, with the teachers. Um, that is so important. And I think it's harmed all of our students across the board, whether they live in the inner city or they live in the suburban community. So I'm very happy to hear that our schools are beginning to open up. And Eva, we wanted to talk to you too about uh, what's happening with um, over the past several months and, and frankly over the past several years about civil unrest. And, you know, I read something this morning that really shocked me that uh, in Utah, a school allows students to opt out of lessons on African-American history, but the option was rescinded after a national backlash. And in Indiana, a school district superintendent cautioned teachers on Black Lives Matter seasons, mm -hmm. noting that some parents fear their kids are being indoctrinated rather than taught. It, it seems to me, even in the year 2021, that there's still a lot of bias and prejudice and that the Black Lives Movement uh, brought forth a lot of hard emotion. Where do you think we stand in this area as we are now well into 2021? Well, I, I'm hoping, uh, it saddens me for anyone to say that they will opt out of teaching or learning about African-American history because it always has been my position that African-American history is American history, and that's the way I, I, I taught it. I was known for two things while teaching in the Buffalo schools for 30 years. I was known for teaching African-American history all year long from September to June, and for being successful with at-risk students, especially black males. But regarding the um, Black Lives Matter, I, I need to make it clear that I do not agree with all of the positions of the Black Lives Matter, um, and that all I do not agree with all of the uh, 13 principles that they stand on. There are some things I do agree about. I agree that we should look at our criminal justice system and have more equality across the board. I agree that we should, should include, include uh, diversity in our curriculum. Um, and so, but there are some things that I kind of reject. 
Um, I know here in Buffalo and, and some areas across the country, people are engaged in the 1619 Project. But I always have this. This is a question as a researcher and a historian. My question is this. Why are we beginning with the year 1619? Because we are talking about the origins of enslavement in, a, in uh, the, this country and the world, because slavery was really introduced in the 1500s, specifically around 1555, with the slave trader John Hawkins, who transported slaves on a ship called Jesus. And it was the beginning of a line of slave ships with such names as Brotherhood, Liberty, Justice, Mary, Gift of God. So if we really want to teach the history, we got to go back, farther back than 1619. And the other thing I would point out is this, is that not all, not all blacks who came over here and, were, and first landed here in, in Jamestown were slaves. Some of them were indentured servants, and that's a piece of the history that's missing. So one of my goals, uh, Joe and Brenda, has been for all of these years, and I want to just add this. My column, I Am History, this month is 42 years old. That means that for 42 straight years, it has never missed a week being published in the city of Buffalo. And what my goal has always been not only to teach African Americans, but to teach the entire country, whether no matter what ethnic background, because I think that will build a better understanding between us all. Eva, let me ask you, where did the, 16, the year 1619 come from, and have you or would you uh, talk to the Buffalo schools and say, hey, you know, hold up a minute, 1555, tell the Buffalo schools what you told us and you know, try to, try to uh, get them to go back and start with 1555. Well, I think, they, I think that year was chosen because it was uh, the first arrival of the first slaves, I believe the number was 20, in Jamestown, Virginia. And uh, I would emphasize what I just told you, that we need to go back further than that. Not, not only talking about uh, Africans who came here uh, in the 1500s, but also talking about the fact that they came with many of the Spanish explorers. Some of them were slaves. I, I, I know that. But there were some of them who were explorers in their own right. People such as Estevanico, his name was uh, also known as Esteban, he traveled in, in the 1300s. It took him nine years to cross the United States, and he discovered Arizona and, and New Mexico. Now, to your question about what would I say to the Buffalo Board of Education, I've been saying this right along, Joe. I've been preaching. I've been preaching. I, you can call me a preacher. I've been preaching this message for many, many years, and I often have spoken in front of the Board of Education. But I have to give them credit, too, because they have had programs um, even prior to the Black Lives Matter movement. I have been involved in, as a leader in workshops and helping the teachers to learn more about African-American history. 
I have been involved in um, programs such as Project Seed, which is seeking educational um, equity across the curriculum. Uh, I have been involved in many multicultural programs, and I was not the only one involved. There were a lot of other people. But we, are, we should not be reinventing the wheel because the programs have always been there. We just need to resurrect them and put them out there and get everyone involved. You know, we heard uh, many names over the past several months that now resonate in a, in a sad way, I think, Eva. George Floyd uh, down the road in Rochester, Daniel Prude just recently, Trayvon Martin certainly was another name that we heard, Breonna Taylor. All of these African Americans were killed. And, you know, there's so much attention and a spotlight shining on the movement and the desire for uh, a more equitable life for all peoples. And yet these circumstances happen. Do you feel like things will ever change in your lifetime? Well, you know, um, Brenda, I always have hope. Um, I, that's, that's how I have uh, lived my life, um, going, looking at all these issues. I've always been involved in this community. And I have met so many young people, um, both African-Americans and uh, students from all backgrounds, who have done some outstanding things. One of the reasons I give scholarships every year, I, out of my own funds, I created a scholarship in honor of my late husband, who was a veteran of the Korean War, Romeo Doyle Muhammad. And I have, for the last 11 years, have given scholarships to some of the most outstanding students in our city. But I will say this, as a mother of three sons, of two sons, <laughs> giving myself another son, as the mother of two grown sons and a grandmother of three grandsons and a great-grandmother of four to be five, soon to be five great grandchildren, I want them to live in a world where we don't have all of this chaos and confusion. And I always worry about them. When they leave home, the question I have as a black mother, will they come back home safely? So I work very hard with all the things that I do in the community, um, with not just writing about black history, but being current and being involved with young people. Uh, so I, I really hope and I pray that we will have a better world. And I work with all people. It, it doesn't matter. Um, African-Americans, um, people in the white community. I have a lot of friends in the white community. And as you know, my column has been published in the Buffalo News for the last nine years. And I really appreciate that because as a result of that, I have been invited to speak in Williamsville, Cheektowaga, Orchard Park, Amherst, Tonawanda. So that gives me a chance to connect with people from all racial backgrounds. So I just feel that we have to come together. We have to work together. We have to encourage our young people. And I think things will get better. I've maintained a positive attitude. Do you think that there will be... Uh 
police reform. I know a lot of people were talking about having uh, more of a social worker approach. Now, certainly I'm a big advocate of law enforcement, and uh, I think the police, uh, the police men and women in our community uh, have a very unenviable job. Uh, I can't imagine the stress that they deal with day in and day out. And yet I think things could improve, Eva. Uh, what do you see happening with uh, police forces here and around the country as these issues continue to evolve? Well, uh, I'm encouraged. Um, right, right here in the city of Buffalo, um, I think our mayor has, uh, has uh, shown some leadership and uh, advancing the, cause, the um, cause of police reform. And let me just say, we, we have some very good police officers uh, in law enforcement. I have uh, two of my grandchildren have a recent, recently expressed a desire to join the police force, and I encourage them to do that because the more good police officers that we have and can interact with especially communities of color, we'll go a long way. So I, I do acknowledge those good police officers. But, you know, I was one of the people, when Trayvon Martin was killed, um, I have participated in a lot of marches and demonstrations myself. I can't do it now, Brenda, because I'm, I, I'm a senior citizen and my legs won't carry me as far as they used to. But I remember demonstrating um, downtown in front of uh, in Lafayette Square with a number of people who saw uh, the killing of Trayvon Martin as being an injustice. And I was there. And I was there because I thought of my own sons and my own grandchildren. So uh, we have a lot of work to do. Um, there has been a call for people to give input for on the police reform that's going on in Erie County. I encourage people to participate in that, and I certainly will do that as well. Eva Doyle, always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Joe, and uh, congratulations on your upcoming wedding. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Eva Doyle, you can uh, find her in the Buffalo Criterion, and you can find her on here. Brenda, we will not wait 11 years to have Eva on again. I can tell you that. Absolutely, Joe. I really enjoyed the conversation with Eva, and thank her for her time. Always, always a great conversation. When we come back, Mayor Byron Brown will be joining us. And at 1130, Ken Cruley from Politics and Stuff. So another packed hour right after news here on News Radio 930 WBEN.